2: Good evening and welcome to another edition of Today with Dr. Wendy. We have so much that we talk about, my co-host Larry Dersham and I, every week as we try to get ready for what we hope is just a fabulous show every Saturday night. And the world is just filled with colorful, engaging, brilliant, interesting people. And we got two of them on the show tonight. Larry, who's up first?
3: Right. We have an amazing guest. Lieutenant Colonel West is the third of four generations of military servicemen in his family. During his 22-year career in the U.S. Army, Lieutenant Colonel West served in several combat zones and received many honors. In November of 2010, Colonel West was elected to the United States Congress, representing Florida's 22nd District as a member of the 112th Congress. After moving to Texas, Mr. West was elected in 2020 to serve as chairman of the Republican Party of Texas. He's the author of three books. First, Guardian of the Republic and American Ronan's Journey to Family, Faith and Freedom. His second, Hold Texas, Hold the Nation, Victory or Death. And his third is called We Can Overcome. With the subtitle, An American Black Conservative Manifesto, Lieutenant Colonel Allen West is the current executive director of the American Constitutional Rights Union, and we are fortunate enough to have him with us tonight. Welcome to the program, Lieutenant Colonel West.
4: It's good to be with you, Larry and Dr. Wendy. Thanks for having me.
2: Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, Lieutenant, you um, have really a a lot to to offer in terms of, gosh, well, we always try to find some sort of humanizing background. I couldn't really tell what to charge here. It looks like you've got a master scuba diver license. You're a motorcycle enthusiast, an avid distance runner, and uh, you've actually got a favorite Team you enjoy cheering on. I think the hint is the Tennessee Volunteers.
5: <laughs> I was That's wondering correct. if
2: you could tell tell our listeners, you know, a little bit about the, um, sort of the, the I don't want to call it the private side of your life. It doesn't sound private, but I suppose the non-political, professional side of your life.
4: Well, sure. I've uh, been married for going on 34 years. Uh, my wife, Dr. Angela Graham West, she was a business professor at Kansas State University. When I met her, I was a captain at Fort Riley Uh, Kansas at the time, and after Desert Shield, Desert Storm, I was able to get on with the faculty at Kansas State and teach Army ROTC there, so we were both on campus there, both uh, K-State graduates. She has a master's and a Ph.D. from there, I mean a bachelor's and a Ph.D. from there, and I have a master's from there. I have two daughters, uh, both born out in Kansas. They are now 30 and 26. I have one grandson who will be two years old in Kansas what, 14 days? And so we're looking forward to that. And uh, just, you know, simple guy, born and raised in the inner city of Atlanta, Georgia, had great parents. Uh, my dad was a World War II veteran. My mom worked for a Marine Corps district headquarters. Uh, my older brother was a Marine in Vietnam. I did 22 years myself. My nephew is a, a lieutenant colonel now in the Army, and uh, he is serving out of Fort Lewis, Washington. Uh, both my son-in-laws have served in the Army, so I'm pretty blessed uh, fellow.
3: Uh, Alan, uh, I have a quote here that I, I want to see if it's, it's correct. It said, when it comes to the lives of my soldiers, if they're at stake, I would go through hell with a gasoline can. Is that accurate?
4: Uh, yes, sir, that is accurate. That was um, back in... 2003 in
3: Iraq. That is great. When I heard that, I may have heard it on the Sean Hannity show. You became an instant, lifelong hero of mine. And I've been trying. I can't believe I get a chance to talk with you today. But that is amazing. And you 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 are a leader. I just hope one day you're president of the United States. But um, well, you're too kind. Anyhow, it seems that everywhere we look. In, American, uh, in America, we, our values and our institutions are under attack by forces within and without that are trying to transform our great republic into something our founders never envisioned. Do you agree with that statement? And if yes, what's behind this effort?
4: Well, sure. As a matter of fact, you go back to uh, 2008 in uh, Columbia, Missouri, uh, Barack Obama, Obama uh, made the statement, we're five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America, and nobody challenged them. Nobody asked, well, what are you transforming us into or what are you transforming us from? And so when you look at America as the one of the longest-running constitutional republics that the world has ever known, now this uh, progressive socialism, which is, as uh, Sir Winston Churchill said, is a creed of ignorance and a philosophy of failure— it has uh, really risen up, and it has overtaken our college and university campuses. It is now reaching deep into even our middle and elementary school levels. Uh, it has controlled uh, our media, and it has really seeped into our court systems in many ways. And so we are being challenged to continue along that ideal of individual rights, freedoms, and liberties, uh, as opposed to this collectivization collectivization of who we are as an American people and, you know, pitting us against each other in these respective different uh, factions that socialism is trying to put us into. And so it used to be socioeconomic and now it's becoming racial. Now it's even going into, you know, this thing about gender and and how we've got all these different genders mm. that are out there when we know well. that the truth is there are only two, uh, male and female. That's right.
2: You know, one of the things that uh, lots of people bring up on the show and otherwise is, you know, we never even thought we were foraying into some of these areas, even as recently as 10 years ago. And, you know, I just wonder, as we talk about First Amendment right to free speech, religious liberty, et cetera. I mean, do you see a a sort of a uh, where the opening occurred for some of these ideas to really sort of catch fire? And then what, what you expect to see in the future with some of this?
4: Well, I think there is an incredible chasm that has uh, been created between constitutional conservatism as a philosophy of governance and, as I said, this progressive socialism, which is really now—we're facing cultural Marxism uh, and borderline communism in in America. And I think it started in our university uh, campuses uh, that's where it got its inception. And if you want to look at it politically, uh, I would say that with the Johnson administration, Great Society programs, those w- were the the modern-day catalyst for it. Uh, we saw a little tinge of it with the uh, Carter administration, but I really think it came full bore uh, with the beginning of the eight years under Barack Obama. Uh, we never really identified it. For whatever reason, people are afraid to confront it and call it for what it is. And now it has metastasized itself in a full-blown-out cancer that's uh, affecting our country. And, you know, just last week I was down there on the border of Texas. Uh, it's my 11th or 12th trip down. But I spent four days there. And the fact that we have a nation now where people don't even want to protect our sovereignty and our borders, and you look at uh, this this flood of illegal immigrants over the past you know, two and a half years that have come into this country, five to seven million, and now Title 42 getting lifted next week. There, You know, who knows where it ends? So I think that you are starting to see an awakening of people, especially when you have folks that are challenging uh, parents on their sovereignty in their home with their children. Uh, people are being told what type of stove they can have, what kind of car they can drive. Uh, up in the state of Washington, if you don't you know bow down to this new god of gender dysphoria and allow your uh, children to be uh, mutilated. Uh, the government will take your children away. So I think that these things are really starting to anger a lot of people, not to mention the uh, the situation with inflation and being told if you have a good credit score, you have to subsidize those people that don't have a good credit score when it comes to mortgages. Uh, it, it's, it's going a bridge too far, if I can use that military term.
3: Absolutely, it is. And with the 2020 presidential election and then the 2022 midterms, the question of election integrity has come up front and center. Do you think our current Mm -hmm. election system is secure? And if not, what steps must we take before 2024 to guarantee we have fair and honest elections in the United States?
4: Yeah, without a doubt, we've got to do better. These machines that we're using, if you have counties because that's the level by which elections are executed. If you have counties that want to choose to use machines, these machines cannot be hooked up into the internet. They've got to be clean. uh, And we've got to do some beta testing as best we possibly can for hacking and things of that nature. And there are some people who believe that all machines are hackable. So maybe we should look at where we can and certain counties across the country go back to paper ballots. But the biggest thing that happened in 2020 was that you had states Uh, did, did unconstitutional things by the way of governors or secretaries of state or judges changing election law. And uh, last time I checked with Schoolhouse Rock, the only people that could amend law is the (laughs) legislative branch. And so I think that that basic understanding of of civics needs to be uh, restudied. And we cannot have bureaucrats that are going out and changing election law, or we cannot have what we saw happen in Maricopa County when all of a sudden on election day, some 60 percent of voting machines, you know, go oops uh and especially in Republican precincts, and there was no recourse to that. There there should have been some type of testing to make sure that didn't happen, and then we have judges that made the decision that, no, we're not going to extend voting hours, which if something like that had happened to the disadvantage of Democrats, uh, voting hours would have been extended. So there is yeah, some know- uh, un- unfair practices out there when it comes to our election procedures.
2: I appreciate that. We're at a hard break. I understand you have a program called the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. People can check out mm-hmm. and subscribe to. We want to thank you so much for joining the show. This has been just delightful to have you on and share your perspective.
4: Thank you, Colonel. Thank you so much. God and don't
2: touch that dial, listeners, because we are coming right back with another guest for the second half. You're listening to Today with Dr. Wendy. Headlines with the Silver Lining. We will be right back.
1: News cycle lowlights have no place here. You're listening to the headline highlights on Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. It's time for more news you can use. The headlines streamlined. It's time for more Today with Dr. Wendy. Now here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick.
2: Welcome back to Today with Dr. Wendy. This is Wendy Patrick and my co-host Larry Gershman and I have a terrific second half for you Larry, who do we have on the line joining us for the second half?
3: Dr. Kevin Slack is a professor of politics at Hillsdale College, where he teaches political philosophy and American political thought, including American progressivism, liberalism and radicalism. Dr. Slack has just come out with a new book called War on the American Republic. How Liberalism Became Despotism. We'd like to talk to Professor Slack this evening about his book and hopefully get some insights into the forces that are attempting to transform our nation into something that was never envisioned by our founding fa- uh, fathers. So welcome to the show, Kevin. So good to have you on.
5: Good to be here.
2: Kevin, you teach at perhaps uh, the best conservative liberal liberal arts college in America, very well-known um, Hillsdale College yeah, a lot of people know the name. They, they maybe aren't sure why they know the name or how they know the name. But could you briefly tell us about Hillsdale College and uh, some of the, the uh, concerns, issues, benefits um, with the parents weigh when deciding, you know, whether to send their child there or somebody else?
5: sure i think I think what makes Hillsdale stand out what it's known for first is a is a core curriculum uh so all the students are required to take certain uh classics uh in the western uh in the western tradition, so they're required to read their homer their Virgil milton Dante, and so on. Uh, and so they all uh, are somewhat on the same page. They have debates about all kinds of things, whether it's theology or philosophy. Uh, and so Hillsdale is one of very few schools that conserve some of these uh, in education in the great texts also it's known for being conservative just for the simple fact that uh, the students there are expected to they have a core requirement in politics and it means that they read the Constitution the Federalist Papers uh, and the the opinions of the American founders the institutions they created the seriousness uh, with which they thought about virtue in the family these are things that they uh, are introduced to and are expected to read the original source materials on Uh, and so I think for that reason Hillsdale stands out uh, when you know when students go to Hillsdale, uh, many of the older traditional uh, schools of thought are taken seriously. Uh, so you'll find uh, students still debating in their first year in the cafeteria, uh, arguments from Orthodox Catholicism and Protestantism, some of the older, um, you know, the the, uh, the high-right Anglicans and Lutherans, there's a presence here, Presbyterians, you name it. So I think that Hillsdale has preserved uh, much of the Western tradition, and it's appreciated for that. Uh,
3: Professor. I think almost everyone listening to this broadcast senses that something has changed in America, and we may never go back to the way our nation was when we were growing up. Can you briefly tell us how the original progressive movement of 1880 through 1920 broke with the older constitutional order and started things off in that direction?
5: Yeah, there was something of a crisis. I mean, we're going back quite a ways here, but between 1880 and 1920, uh, America was largely uh, part of a middle-class uh, Anglo republic, uh, and there was a crisis that took place, and uh, there was a turn to an alternative source of authority, uh, and that was science. Science understood differently than the way we talk about it today. Uh, it had a certain uh, metaphysical underpinning that the old progressives focused on. But uh, because of the challenges that they faced, uh, they tried to handle or resolve those problems in a different way. Uh, so It's during this old progressive era that you find the creation of what we call the administrative state, essentially the end or the beginning of the end of many of the Republican institutions created by the founders, uh, namely the idea that only Congress uh, was given lawmaking power in Article I of the Constitution. And it's during the progressive era that these ideas are forwarded and also implemented uh, to create uh, administrative commission boards that would be delegated lawmaking authority and back then, there was a kind of nice day. The presumption was uh, that by their expertise and their scientific education, you could have experts in economics, for example, always rule in the public interest, and they themselves not be co-opted uh, by the very entities they were supposed to regulate. So uh, America moves away from its Republican institutions, and I think that sets in motion. And, uh, or prepares the way for uh, a loss or a decline of the actual Republican character, right? The habits that we still associate with Americanism, but have been on the decline ever since uh, with the, the loss of those uh, institutional hedges that were supposed to secure a certain way of, of being.
2: Great. Yeah, you know, um, part of the, you know, the ideology that you describe and that we've kind of been talking about, I, I don't know that a lot of listeners understand the use of the words progressive, liberal, radical. I mean, we toss those around. We, we sort of insert them to mean certain things with different stories. But given the, the issues that you've identified in your new book, War on the American Republic, how liberalism became despotism, how will you sort of distinguish between progressive, liberal and radical? What do they mean?
5: Yeah, great question. And one of the that's one of the major focuses of the book, is, is to try to root these words uh, in American history uh, and to divide up the book chronologically. So the older progressives uh, refer to that group I just referred to, 1880 to 1920. Uh, the word liberalism first comes into use the way we understand it today, which is to say an increase in the size and scope of government, nominally to increase individual liberties, but really subverting what conservatives today would call a classical liberalism, limited government. Uh, That comes into uh, use in America in the 19-teens, but really takes off during the New Deal from 1933 to 1969. Uh, I think one of the best ways to describe those liberals is uh, their science is a focus on scientific method, and a kind of pride in jettisoning the metaphysical underpinnings or philosophical underpinnings of the older science. So if you were to describe it in a nutshell, it would be you have this explosion in what I think we could call state capitalism. You have the creation of the big six regulatory uh, boards and commissions during the New Deal, and the focus is on adjusting American citizens to their family, to their society. Uh, And this was a level of intervention we've never seen in American history before, uh, for example, most government, when you get to, oh, 1930, the vast proportion of government was uh, local. Uh, most all, all uh, say, about 60% of non-military governmental expenditures were at the local level. By the end of the New Deal, that's completely flipped. And now it's about 57 to 60% are, are at the federal level. So the liberals have this confidence in... Um, uh, and, and I'd say at it's worse than a kind of relativism. It was the idea that the reason wins out, we don't need any absolutes, it's the end of utopias, and we are going to create a society of indefinite planning. We're going to plan the family, plan the economy, uh, and et cetera. And so what you have is a, a decency there. So when we talk about the mid-century liberals, uh, I usually describe it to the students as a leave it to beaver society. You know, the same people who introduced Social Security uh, in the 1960s, Medicare and Medicaid, were often very decent people, the same people who go off to fight uh, World War II. And even though there were disputes over many of those, those, uh, those issues, um, I think you can talk about a general liberal consensus. When we use the word radical or when we use the word progressive today, we don't refer to the older progressives really at all. What we're referring to are the radicals in the 1960s who rise up against the 1950s and 60s liberals. That's who their real enemies were. They weren't fighting against, you know, like the American founding. What they were attacking was American liberal society, uh, and they're very clear about that. And so, if you look along the lines of oh, philosophy or psychology, they're rejecting that uh, that 1950s way of life. And so I think uh, that uh, group, that radical uh, element that breaks off in the 60s is still around in the 1990s and informs much of what we call identity politics today. In fact, if you go back and you read the documents, and I have my students read these, from the late 60s to the early 70s, there is not a wrinkle uh, in the leftist game uh, in this, this identity politics system of thought. The whole idea of systemic uh, white supremacy, of unconscious racism, confessing your white privilege, allying with the anti-racist, these are all in documents, even some of them governmental documents, in the early 1970s. So when we use the word progressive today, we're just referring to somebody who's to the left of the liberals Uh, And uh, the liberals see themselves as centrists, very open to reason, freedom of speech, and so on. Mm.
3: With all the damage the left has brought, in my opinion, continues to bring on America, what more do you think they have in store for us? For example, what's your opinion on the push for global government and the effort to cede our sovereignty to the World Health Organization whenever a pandemic is declared by the director general of WHO?
5: Yeah, not just a pandemic, any emergency, and I think that is a good indicator of what we have in store. Uh, in my book, I, I focus on, I mean, there's, there's a, another movement I treat, the neoliberal movement of the 80s and the 90s, but it culminates in a treatment of 2020 and 2021, and I think it's important to do so because we get we get a kind of insight as to what uh, the, 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 the rulers, uh, who really rule the country, make the most important decisions, what they have in store for the populace uh and i think what it is is the crushing of any dissent any kind of political dissent and they're going to use uh you know big tech and of course during uh covid we saw this uh the use of twitter or facebook literally the fbi working together with these corporations to crush uh, any freedom of speech um, uh, and that would extend to dissent along the lines of families. And uh, you know, I think Canada provides a good example of what the left has in store for all Americans with regard to decisions they would make for their children. You see this happening in certain states in the United States right now, in Washington or in California. Uh, for Washington, for example, recently passed a, uh, of a bill uh... that would allow runaways uh... and runaway runaways from their parents because their parents disagree uh, on gender and gender reassignment surgery to be able to receive those procedures at state cost uh... That's something of course uh, that you see uh, in canada as well as making a crime the misgendering of your own children uh... i think those are the types of uh... decrees uh... we see coming into the future obviously the war on the second amendment uh...
2: Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for that. I'm so sorry. we got a heartbreak. I, this has been amazing information. Your book sounds fascinating. You sure know your stuff. Right. You know what you're talking about. Thank you for uh, for illuminating It's it called The
3: us. War on the American Republic. Buy it, folks. It's wonderful.
2: And you are listening to Today with Dr. Wendy. We look forward to having you back next Saturday night, 6 p.m. And between now and then, we are wishing you a healthy, safe week. God bless you, and we will see you next week.